Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. The complexity and duration of a RICO conspiracy case involving 19 defendants began to come clear this week. Legal maneuvers over removal and speedy trials divided the group into two or three cohorts, each facing potentially multi-month trials with the same evidence. According to a newly unsealed report, the special grand jury that advised Fonnie Willis recommended indicting all 19 now-facing charges and some 20 more, including Senator Lindsey Graham and Trump stalwarts Mike Flynn and Cleta Mitchell. Special Counsel David Weiss, who's been investigating Hunter Biden for more than five years, announced that he will be seeking an indictment of Biden for gun charges that had been the subject of a diversion agreement that came undone at the plea hearing. The decision felt problematic, given that Biden had done nothing to change the equation and that the department almost never prosecutes standalone cases of the sort Weiss will bring. The four indictments against Trump have not cut into a substantial lead over the entire Republican presidential field. And according to several polls, he remains tied in a hypothetical matchup with Biden. Even if he does not get the nomination, Trump's closest challengers both came out with sympathetic comments about the Proud Boys, suggesting that Trumpism, including its authoritarian strain, will continue its vice grip on the party no matter who becomes its standard bearer. To break down the intense partisan clashes that continue to plague our legal, social, and political lives, we welcome three of the country's most respected and incisive commentators. And they are Julia Ainsley, an NBC correspondent who covers the Department of Justice and Department of Homeland Security. She previously was a criminal justice correspondent at Thomson Reuters and served as a White House correspondent for that organization back in 2015 when somebody descended an escalator and changed the world. Julia, so pleased to welcome you. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. David Jolly. David represented Florida's 13th District in Congress from 2014 to 2017. Truth be told, he's held virtually every position in Congress from intern to member and has worked outside of Congress as an attorney and political consultant he is also an analyst on MSNBC. Always a great uh, pleasure to welcome you. Thanks for coming back, David Jolly. Good to be with you, Harry. And Lisa Rubin, I believe it's her second time here, but it feels like four. <laughs> anyway, an legal analyst for MSNBC, the off-air legal analyst for The Rachel Maddow Show and Alex Wagner Tonight. Lisa worked as a litigator, a real live lawyer, for over 10 years, as did David, before pivoting to become the Emmy-nominated journalist, analyst, and writer we know her as today. Lisa, so pleased to welcome you. Thanks for being here. I'm happy to be back. Thanks, Harry. All right, let's start where else in Fulton County, where we're beginning to see the broader implications, I think, of a RICO indictment of 19 defendants with quickly multiplying nearly unlimited potential twists and turns. So Friday morning, three days ago, and today as we tape, the Fulton County Court released 
the special grand jury report that Fonnie Willis had used as the template for her investigation. It turns out that grand jury recommended charges not just for the 19, although all of the 19 that Willis uh, did charge, but 39, 20 others, more than were even indicted. Let's start here. What name sort of jumped out at you among the people who dodged bullets? I'd say Lindsey Graham. I don't think that's a name that we expected to see. He loves talking. He loves to get out, explain his side of an issue. He hasn't really been one of those people who we would put in this camp, who he doesn't, he's not the tip of my tongue when I think of people who are questioning the legitimacy of the 2020 election. But it looks like this stemmed from, in part, his work in the Senate, where he was holding hearings on the legitimacy of the election. He put out a statement today saying, look, he did vote to certify the results, but that he thinks that any American should be able to question how our election is run. It's just that you have to put it in the context of the time where, you know, when these hearings were coming through and the fact that there was a mounting insurrection that later turned into a very bloody and terrible insurrection. And so I think that would be one of the reasons why the grand jury got to that point. But to me, that was the name that that really jumped out today as unexpected. And it, it just helped me understand more the mindset of this grand jury going into this. The actual charging grand jury, you mean? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, no, I see that. You know, he also applied pressure, I think it's fair to say, on Raffensperger, made some calls that he tried to shield under speech and debate clause, but sure seemed to be putting the boot to the neck. And Raffensperger testified that he had felt intimidated. So, you know, he could have been lumped in there as well. I think Lindsey Graham, without question, Julia is right. His name jumps off the page. And to me, I actually think he knew exactly what he was doing. I think his fealty to Donald Trump has been a little bumbling and listless and unexplainable. So I think he was actually trying to participate in the broader scheme. My take, though, was he probably has the clearest defense of all because he actually was going to be a U.S. senator voting on certification of the election. And therefore, I would think a defense of Lindsey Graham would be fairly intuitive and obvious, not just speech and debate, but speech and debate with teeth, that, hey, this was a matter coming directly before me in a matter of weeks. And so I took it upon myself to investigate independently. I guess the legal question, is it possible that that someone like Lindsey Graham was not charged because the likelihood of a prosecution would be slim? Or was there another reason why he wasn't charged? Harry, I'm interested in your perspective on this, but I think there are a couple of reasons that he wasn't charged. One is that the evidence against him with respect to his calls to Raffensperger don't end in an audio recording as they do with some of the other calls to Raffensperger and people working for him, but rather devolved into a he said, he said, right? Brad Raffensperger famously went to the Washington Post in mid-November of 2020, said that he had been called by Lindsey Graham, who was asking him whether or not he could throw out ballots, mail-in ballots specifically, in counties that had higher rates of non-signature matches. From Raffensperger's perspective, that was Graham basically insinuating, can you just wholesale throw out ballots? I'm asking you to do this. Graham's perspective was, no, 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 I was just fact-finding. And David, to your point, under my speech and debate clause powers, because I will be one of the people voting on certification, I'm just asking the questions. But because at the end of the day, 
those two men are the only two people known to participate in that phone call. I think that presented an evidentiary quandary for the prosecutors. And then you see in the special grand jury report, I think factor two, which is that a higher number of people on this special grand jury voted against a recommendation to indict Lindsey Graham on RICO charges than any other person for whom the special grand jury recommended charges on any count. And that had to weigh on DA Fonnie Willis and her team as well. I think it's really important generally to understand that the special grand jury report was supposed to be advisory to her. I think what was happening during the months that we were, what's the deal here, you had said imminent, were really careful deliberations for all, there's all kinds of reasons. Uh, We don't necessarily know them. We shouldn't necessarily know them, but you sit down with your team. How are we going to prove this, that? What will the defenses be? There's all kinds of reasons you would make case-specific determinations not to go forward. And all the special grand jury has done at most is say we think there is probable cause here, big difference from proving beyond a reasonable doubt. And as Lisa said, even some 13 of them didn't say that as to Graham. So I think we may be overplaying it a little when we think that those people were, you know, got by on the skin of their teeth. It might just be, and would make sense to me, that Fonnie Willis was like, holy cow, I'm, I'm biting off such a huge thing here. Do I really need a U.S. senator also in addition to the merits? And that would be legit too. Just generally, it's kind of funky, maybe feels improper that we have now revealed all these names of people who weren't going to be charged. In the federal system, you would never do that. That was what the big sin with Jim Comey. But let me ask if you have thoughts about that in general. And also as to Graham, does this have legs since he's not charged? It's hard for me to see how this has further political reverberations for Graham beyond which has already happened. There are no new factual allegations here with respect to Lindsey Graham. In fact, everything that we're discussing about the, fa- uh, the factual allegations are things that we ourselves know from public reporting to date. So the fact that he was not among the people eventually indicted, and that this document adds nothing in the way of factual information to what is known about his participation. Hard for me to see, Harry, how this really hurts him. If anything, it gives him another opportunity to sort of make himself a cause celeb to those who are inclined toward his viewpoint here, which is that there were legitimate questions to be asked. And yet at the end of the day, he comes back to the fold of the rule of law by voting to certify the election. And that might have been a factor for Fonnie Willis too, right? Is that even though attempts count for purposes of Georgia Rico, they don't in the federal system. But while attempts count, Lindsey Graham is not a person who necessarily like completed his intentions here. He might have tried to intimidate Raffensperger at the beginning, but by the time January 6th rolls around, he's at least sort of falling in line with others. I mean, attempts count, but lousy cases are lousy cases. Well, I just wanted to ask the lawyers we're speaking with here. I call a lot of lawyers every day, but I did not go to law school. Just so. By the way, you're a first timer. Let me tell you that sentence comes up every single week okay. on Talking Feds. I'm not a lawyer, but so. I'm not bring a lawyer, it. but. Well, I want to ask the lawyers here if really the word we should be talking about here is conspiracy, that when you're bringing RICO charges and you have 19 defendants, and you're trying to show that there was a conspiracy among these defendants, that people like Lindsey Graham would be left off simply because you can't tie them, their spoke, back to the nexus 
on the wheel of this conspiracy. And therefore, because there are so many other spokes, 19 of them, that gets left off and taken out of the history of this as well, that he would, it would be too hard to show that he was part of a wider conspiracy. Do you think that that could have been what was also going into Fannie Willis's head when she decided to leave some of these people off? Go directly to second year law school, if not graduation. Yes. And it's that kind of specific factor in the federal system. Generally, you need to show you got to believe they're guilty, really believe it, and you can prove it. And I think something like that really does go to, can we make this case? And then third, it's legitimate to think, do we want to try to make this case with all we've taken on? Because what we're really seeing these last few days, we can maybe talk more about this, is the consequences of her having charged this honking, sprawling conspiracy where every little event ripples 19 or 17 directions and adds enormous complications. One of the things that makes me scratch my head about the question you ask is that this is not a typical hub-and-spoke conspiracy in the sense that not every member of the conspiracy is alleged to have taken direction from Donald Trump or even from anyone in particular. And I'm thinking about the prong of the case that has to do with Stephen Lee, Trevian Cootie, and Harrison Floyd, for example. I don't remember there being, and I don't have the Fulton County indictment in front of me, any allegation about who, for example, Stephen Lee was taking direction from. Rather, the allegation is that Stephen Lee, who's this pastor in Illinois, goes to Trevian Cootie and involves Harrison Floyd in an effort to intimidate Ruby Freeman, but it's not clear how he gets linked to the campaign or to the conspiracy in the first place either. So I'm not sure that's necessarily the impediment. On the other hand, it could be because none of us have seen the majority of what the DA is intending to use as proof. If we take her team's word at face value, they have 150 witnesses now for trial, whereas when they made their presentation to the special purpose grand jury, they had literally half of that. So who knows what they have at their disposal right now that could link someone like a Lindsey Graham to the ultimate agreement to participate in a conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia? Yeah, that's a very good point. So I mean, RICO is has been called conspiracy within a conspiracy. It's so amorphous. And if you really parse the legal elements carefully, basically all he would have needed to do is be down with the plan of trying to and, and commit an act. But more is going to come on just the consequences of charging RICO. Let me just ask a couple more people who I thought they came out at me because, man, I thought they were in the fold, seemed as guilty as people who were charged, and yet they weren't. The dogs who didn't bark, that would be Michael Flynn and Cleta Mitchell. They're pretty thick in it, and they, and as I've said, there could be so many reasons, and we don't know, and maybe we shouldn't know, that it seemed to others that, like, here's some pretty culpable figures who seem to have gotten a pass. No, at least on Flynn. If you're trying to draw a nexus between Fulton County and Flynn, that seems to me to be a much harder lift, right? Flynn's involvement here is in that December 18th, 2020 meeting at the White House, where a number of people, including Flynn and Sidney Powell, attempt to convince President Trump to sign an executive order seizing voting machines and appointing Sidney Powell as a special prosecutor with rights to investigate how these voting machines were tampered with. I don't remember any allegations about Flynn's directing himself into the events of Georgia itself, the way someone like even Clayton Mitchell was, or John Eastman, or Ken Chesbro. If that evidence is out there, it's just not coming to mind. But 
to the extent that the RICO conspiracy as defined by the special purpose grand jury is one that is national in scope, I can see how the DA's office still would have had a lot of hesitation about charging it in that way for personal jurisdiction reasons. Let's go a little bit now to what happened before then. And as I say, there's a subtext to all of this is like, wow, this is multiplying in complexity and quickly. But we had the first hearing, severance motions of Chesbro and Sidney Powell. It looks like the upshot is the two of them have an early trial and maybe, hopefully, the 17 otherwise. Let's just return to this point. Four months, just their case jury selection and the other big RICO case that made Willis's fame, that alone took three months, 150 witnesses. For starters, how's that going to play to a jury who are sitting there with just two defendants, most of whom the evidence doesn't even concern? Is there a worry that this is just too big and amorphous to bring down to earth, especially in a series of prosecutions of subsets? of the group. I think that we're we're not only going to see the patience of the jury tested, but also the patience of the judge, McAfee, who said that he has some skepticism that this can even happen in four months, given everything, you know, 150 witnesses and all of these defendants. But it also, I think, serves as really a direct contrast to Jack Smith's approach, where mm. his way of looking into conspiracy to you stop the legitimate transfer of power from the 2020 election was to just focus on Trump. And so what happens when you have all of these defendants, and this is the fourth indictment of the former president, is it so much so that you've got what's ha- the, the court inside the courtroom, but also the court of public opinion? Is this the kind of thing where people just start to lose interest. And then we start to kind of lose the narrative here as more and more defendants take the stand. But we've been able to see how many people have been tried for January 6th. That goes on and on. And I know we'll we'll get to that later when we talk about the Proud Boys sentencing. But one thing that I've heard from DHS folks, those January 6th sentences do have an effect on people who might be thinking about trying something like that again, some sort of domestic violence. So could it be, you know, on the other side, maybe this is too amorphous, maybe there are too many defendants, but could it also be that through a trial like this, it's really sending a message to any future administration that this is not tolerated in Fulton County, it's not tolerated in the United States, this idea that anyone in power could try to stop the peaceful transfer of power. So I'm seeing it from both sides here. I would add something to this because I think some of us may have been on air having this discussion when the ruling on the motion was made. I think there's an incredibly intriguing political angle here that has been overlooked just because of the concentration and the focus on the legal. And that is, if indeed Chesborough and Powell move with the early trial date, and let's just be generous to the prosecutors that this thing could be done in four months, what that means is you could have one of the first verdicts in all of these cases before the Republican primary is decided. And to Julia's point, does that change the national narrative? Is there a point of exhaustion? I'm kind of playing devil's advocate here. Suppose Powell and Chesborough get acquitted. Suppose they get acquitted weeks before the Republican nominee, and the nation has just tried to keep up with this four-month conspiracy trial that's been aired and We're all trying to become many lawyers and understand what's going on. We're exhausted by it, confused by it. The defendants get acquitted. 
Politics happens in such a low to medium information space. Nuance is not done in politics like it is in the courtroom. It could dramatically shift or secure the dynamic in the Republican nomination. Conversely, if you see a conviction, does that give an opportunity for some of the other Republican candidates in the race to lean in a little bit, suggesting that, hey, we only have a few more weeks in this Republican primary, but what we're looking at now is a front runner who might be losing his liberty sometime before the general election. So therefore, let's turn this race upside down. I think it's fascinating, though I personally don't really like to think of the acquittal scenario. I think we have to think of it as analysts because we could be looking at something that could tangibly impact the Republican presidential nomination race. Yeah, it's an excellent point. I think there's no acquittal scenario for Donald Trump, but to the extent guys like Chesbro and Powell are stand-ins for him, right? Very importantly, I think probably we would all concur. I think the broad concurrence is that there really is no scenario in any of the four matters where Donald Trump faces a trial verdict before the Republican nomination is shored up by him or somebody else, right? If that's the second week in March, give or take, would there be a trial verdict in any of the matters for Donald Trump personally? I don't think so, which is why this early verdict would set a narrative of either culpability or criminality or acquittal, I think is a fascinating dynamic to consider. I think that's right. The real question is whether there's one before November. The uh, The eyes on the prize to me is definitely and even more now the Jack Smith DC trial. But let me ask, in terms of timing now, McAfee makes this great point. I was impressed with McAfee overall. I don't know what you thought. There were these removal motions. Let's say Meadows loses. He's back in state court and they have automatic rights of appeal. This will be true of Trump as well. It comes up, he's sitting there. Jeopardy has attached. That's lawyer speak, meaning you can't try him again. And the 11th Circuit then reverses. I think McAfee doesn't contemplate a trial with the second trial happening until all the removal things have gone all the way up the federal system. And when's the earliest that could be, right? So I'm seeing some shaking heads. I wonder, do you do you agree now that after last week's hearing, the prospects of Trump's facing a trial in Fulton County that could end by November, leave alone March, are vanishingly slim? I would say mostly yes. I haven't thought about whether it's November, but I agree with you that McAfee is certainly inclined not to try the second group of defendants or to have a third group of defendants, right? He's made it very clear that one, he thinks the other 17 should likely stay together for due process reasons and also for the double jeopardy removal issue reasons. And I agree with you, he's not inclined to do that until the removal issue has been litigated to its completion, whether that's through a denial of cert or whether that's through a Supreme Court opinion, that could take many, many months. And I don't see that over until the primary season at the very least, maybe by the height of summer. But I think that means, to your point, Harry, that we don't get a Trump trial verdict until after November, just gaming that out. David, I have a sort of question for you and others, which is, do you see a scenario in which Trump is convicted after racking up the delegates, but before a convention where, you know, you could lead to a political junkie's best dream, right? With the contested, <laughs> contested convention. It's like Aaron Sorkin is like jumping well, up and down yeah. and cheering right now. <laughs> yeah, that's the last scenario on the board, I guess. Would the delegates 
then change their vote at the convention? I would say no, there's no way, except the whole point of what you raise is an unknown. And so my back of the napkin approach to the politics of this is what is settled politically is that the indictments and the charges help Donald Trump. And so none of the courtroom machinations, short of some very new images that shake the national conscience or an actual trial verdict, nothing else matters. This is Donald Trump's nomination wire to wire, it seems. And so what you present then is an unknown. And for Donald Trump, baked into his strategy politically is the reason for delay is not just to protect his freedom and, and liberty. It is to protect him from any unknowns now holding a 30 to 40 point lead. Their charges and indictments are great. They're working for him. A trial he doesn't know. Maybe it actually helps him, but maybe a, a conviction prior to the convention doesn't. And that's that goes to my previous point. The unknown of an exhausted American public who sees either a conviction or acquittal of Chesborough and Powell, I think you're going to see a lot of voters. They will form an opinion with finality, possibly, based on the Chesborough and Powell decision. Because if we as a nation invest time to say, was there really something in Georgia? And we're going to find out with the Chesborough and Powell verdict. I think we will impute that then to Donald Trump, either the acquittal or conviction, and we'll at least see if there's any shift at all. But I truly don't think so. I mean, it sounds cynical, but it's also just data-driven and, and the experience of the last six to eight years. I don't think anything changes Donald Trump's grip on the party, uh, this cycle at least. With that back of the napkin approach, where do you factor in March 4th uh, when they're going to start the trial for Jack Smith, uh, January 6th, and other 2020 election interference charges against Trump in D.C., if that could carry out faster. I also wonder, you know, do you think that the majority of Americans know who Chesborough and Powell <laughs> really are and would be paying attention right. on that level? It seems that there are a number of very educated Americans who have simply gotten fatigued with the latest indictment and are frankly pretty confused about where everything overlaps and where it separates. To your point, I think some of that is a factor of what type of coverage does the press give the Chesborough and Powell trial? Is it covered in a way that most Americans are aware of it? Because if so, I think your point is exactly they're tired of it, they're exhausted of it, and it gives them a reason to consider things to consider the substantive judgment a final one and then be done with it. Well, I now know it's the verdict is in in Fulton County on Chesborough and Powell and it's acquittal or conviction. I now know substantively what happened and I get to impute that to Donald Trump and make my own voting decision. The standing trial on March 4th for Donald Trump, if that were to hold, I just kind of think it's too late in the game to have an impact on Donald Trump. I do think it raises though that the whole general election dynamic that frankly, President Biden and Democrats are going to have to wrestle with and that we're going to have to prepare for as a nation, because you're exactly right, though the Republican nomination may get shored up, under my theory, it gets shored up. As that lens expands towards next November, the likelihood of seeing Donald Trump in a position of losing his liberty and of claiming that he's running to seek absolution at the ballot box becomes the central narrative of the campaign. There's no way around that because he will be center stage either visibly in a courtroom or on the front pages or just the narrative will be Donald Trump now on trial. As much as the nation is going through it right now, I, I'm still questioning 
are we prepared for that moment? Because Joe Biden and Democrats will, in traditional politics, have a perfect contrast. We're running to lift an, to lift up all people, an economy, an education system, industry that lifts all people. Donald Trump's going to be running for what's sitting right in front of you, which is I'm on trial. I'm asking you elect to elect me so I can absolve myself and go after everybody that charged me. And I don't think Joe Biden's going to be able to do it. avoid that. And even if he can't avoid it, should he? Because is it such an existential question that it's the most important thing Joe Biden should talk about? I, I think we're headed towards a real mess. I, I really, really do. It's really interesting to think whether Biden will try to stay hands off. Julie, if I could, I'd like to turn it back to you and just your thoughts. So take the scenario that seems the most likely to serve up a conviction before the election. That's January 6th trial of Smith. Do you see a verdict mattering in the general election? Gosh, I mean, it should, right? If Considering what we're talking about here, it was history making that we had a former president indicted, let alone four times. And now we're talking about a verdict. You, you would think it would. I think the thing that I see a lot of Justice Department officials worried about is whether or not Trump's actually nominated or elected aside, what this campaign season could do to further eradicate the trust of federal prosecutors and the Justice Department. And some people who are, I mean, not only worried about their livelihood, their lives are worried about people who, if Trump is elected, who he might bring into the Justice Department, who have already vowed to go far beyond what we ever saw Sessions or Barr do and really try to recreate a Justice Department that is going to be an arm of the executive branch in the same way the EPA is the arm of the White House, who are doing things that are exactly to carry out the policies and priorities of the White House. Political subordinates, yeah. Right. Uh, so it's that. And then also a big question I wondered, and I haven't seen anything to contradict this yet, is whether or not in a Republican primary, you would actually see other candidates bring up Trump's legal problems as a liability. Instead, they use the platform to, again, further attack and erode the confidence of our judicial system. And so it's a matter of would a conviction fuel that fire even further? Now, whether or not someone can be elected to the White House from a jail cell, I'm going to have to leave to others to figure out how that would work. Actually, we ha did have someone on the D.C. City Council elected from jail just a couple of years ago. So maybe that's the way to look at it. But yeah, it's uh, short of that a worry about about the trust. Hey, Lisa and Harry, I've got another scenario that's never talked about that's a wild one, but it, it builds exactly on what Julia just said. And you get elected from a jail cell. I am reminded of cases in criminal law. What I often think about is a husband and wife who both get convicted. There are young kids at home. They're sentenced, let's say, five years each. But the judge actually staggers reporting because of the extra matters of, say, caring for a child. I kind of wonder about a scenario where Donald Trump gets convicted. He gets sentenced, but he gets elected. And, and, and the reporting date for his sentence is then pushed back four years. A am I crazy to think of such a thing? or does Not that only not crazy, I think it's certain. Uh, to your quick view, Lisa, to me, you know, based on Clinton v. Jones and other things, if he gets convicted in Fulton County and is the president, the Supreme Court will discern probably appropriately a principle in the federal constitution that says that the sentence serving gets held in abeyance. 
So I no pardon, et cetera, but no no jail sentence during a presidency. I'm, you agree? I haven't thought enough about that. I will say, Harry, the possibility that you just floated sounds reasonable to me, but I'd want to think more about that. I keep thinking about, however, something that Julia said, which is talking to people at the Department of Justice about what they fear in a Trump administration if one were to recur. It reminds me of something I saw on Twitter yesterday that I want to talk about because I find it really terrifying. Some of you might be familiar with Mike Davis, who was an aide to Chuck Grassley on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And a couple of days ago, he wrote a tweet that said the following, excited for my three-week reign of terror as Trump's acting attorney general, my partisanship and vindictiveness will even make Biden and Garland blush right before I indict them. And so, you know, to Julia's point, to talk to people who are career prosecutors at the Department of Justice, many of whom are either people who don't really care all that much about partisan politics or are registered Republicans, that sort of rhetoric from somebody who is, while maybe not seen as a serious person by the four of us on this call, he is a person who has lots of establishment credentials and credibility within his own party and including among people who are not perceived as the crazies in his party, right? There are lots of people on so-called team normal who think Mike Davis is on team normal too. And to see that said out loud with such pride was really, really scary for me as a person who believes so thoroughly in the rule of law and is just aghast at the erosion of confidence, not only in the Department of Justice, but in the Bureau itself. I was on set with Von Hilliard the day a recent poll came out talking about Americans' confidence in the Department of Justice and the FBI. And, you know, we used to joke that lawyers, in terms of public surveys, our popularity is below plumbers and only slightly above members of Congress. We've reached a point where your average lawyer is well ahead of the FBI and lawyers at the Department of Justice. And that's a really scary place for us to be as a republic. What's wrong with plumbers? <laughs> What's wrong with plumbers? <laughs> they rip people off, apparently. This is going to be a whole episode of Talking Fizz at the coming Texas Tribune with uh, Frank Figluzzi, Asha Rangapa, Juliet Kayyem. We're going to talk about exactly this, has Trump sort of won. Let's continue this thing, but, uh, but in a concrete way, because I think it's a perfect segue to the other thing uh, I, I wanted to talk about, which is the Hunter Biden developments. What the hell is going on? Why is David Weiss saying he's going to charge him on firearms now? What, if anything, has changed? How do you analyze this? Well, it's interesting. And I, I hate to just start with the defense, but I mean, I've, I've learned a lot from what Hunter Biden's lawyer put out when this news came out, where he says that this would be a standalone case because, yes, there are laws to, that would prevent someone like Hunter Biden, given his drug history and his prior problems from having a firearm, but that he'd said he, that he never used it and it was in his possession for just a few days and that this is really David Weiss going too far. But the thing that, that I've been just going back to is just that shock we all had last month, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it was in August, where the plea deal fell apart. When we were expecting an in and out day in Wilmington, pay the crew for a couple hours, we'll be done. And instead, they were in there for a long time, in part because there was this misunderstanding where Biden's team thought that with this plea deal, they were done and that David Weiss had more he had planned. And perhaps this is one of them. 
while we were just talking about the importance of the confidence of the judicial system and of prosecutors like David Weiss, I do wonder if there is a lot of pressure on him and on this case in particular to try to really go after Hunter Biden in a, in a really advanced and aggressive way. Pressure from where, Julia? Public pressure. But I would leave that to all of you to discuss. But just in terms of you know the public looking at whether or not Hunter Biden will be treated with as much criticism and scrutiny as these people that we're just talking about in Fulton County, obviously completely different crimes at hand, but whether or not there's some pressure there and whether some people thought that if that plea deal in Wilmington last month really had been the end of it, that that might've been Hunter getting off easy. And so is he taking that into account at all? But I did find the the firearms charge to be unexpected given the fact that it's not like this was a, a gun that he used. And that nothing's happened since. It's true under DOJ policy, it's a very rare kind of charge. You can't lie on a form, yes, but they don't prosecute it unless the defendant, typically there's another crime or a really extra reason. And what do we have? We had the weird falling apart of the deal, but that wasn't anything to do with Biden. That that was a kind of lawyerly blunder, it seems to me, on both sides. And then, yeah, the screaming from the hill. It strikes me as among other things, a real problem. This is why we got a special counsel instead of independent counsel. They're supposed to be subject to DOJ policies and the like, but it seems clear that Merrick Garland isn't going to touch David Weiss and he's able to go ahead. Just to put a, a bow on all of this is that, you know, what I think we all want to know is is whether or not Hunter Biden was ever selling his father's name for access here and abroad, and that we still haven't learned that. Harry, one of the things that I find really curious about the Hunter Biden plea and how it fell apart in late July, I think it was July 26, because I was here when it all happened and I remember it really well, is there are sort of two narratives about why it fell apart, right? There's the narrative that it fell apart because there wasn't a meeting of the minds between David Weiss's lawyers on one hand and Chris Clark about how much conduct was encompassed by the plea agreement. That's one narrative. But the second one is what happened with the judge who basically said to them, you have tried to make these two agreements, a plea agreement on one hand and a pretrial diversion agreement with respect to the firearms charge, interlocking. And you've tried to do that in a way that makes me the arbiter of whether your client has abided by his obligations under this pretrial diversion agreement, cutting DOJ out of the loop entirely. I have some real constitutional concerns about that. On the other hand, from a political perspective and understanding what the politics are, you can totally understand why both Hunter Biden's lawyers and the folks working for David Weiss wanted that to be so. It was because they were trying to protect Hunter Biden against a retributive attempt to get him in trouble at a later point in time, if and when the Justice Department is controlled by Donald Trump and his allies. And so I have a lot of sympathy or empathy rather, for all who were involved, because they were trying to negotiate in good faith a resolution of Hunter Biden's legal issues in a way that didn't leave it up to the Mike Davises of the world, whether Hunter Biden had complied. And I just want to make sure that we acknowledge that angle of it too, because that's really at the end of the day, what the judge couldn't abide. You had Biden's lawyers grudgingly say on the record, well, if the meaning of the plea is that it doesn't cover all potential criminal conduct, we're still willing to go forward. 
It wasn't until the judge was like, I have some real concerns here. I need additional briefing as to how you've tried to make these two things interdependent that it seemed to me that everything really fell apart. I don't know if that it struck you the same way. I think it was that. Let me turn to you, David, because I'm hearing you basically say generally the die is largely cast. Nothing's going to change the juggernaut of, of Trump, at least to the nomination. So what about this? Do you have a view assuming Hunter Biden is charged and they go to trial in the middle of 2024. Does it affect the presidential campaign? Well, I think it already has affected it. Look, it's bad for Joe Biden, the optics of it politically. But is it fatal? I think what we've learned thus far is no, it's not. Unless DOJ somehow after five years of investigating in year number six, is able to tie one of these allegations to Joe Biden himself. Otherwise, it is the president's son. And I think that's very important in here not to get lost. This is the president's son who did not work in the White House, who, even as Julia said, was was he selling his proximity to his father as a way to make a living? Well, half of Washington does that. The Senate would only have 50 senators if family members weren't allowed to sell their last name to special interests. The question is, are any of the Republican allegations actually true? Did any of the money make itself to Joe Biden as vice president? Was he personally enriched by it? And that's where as many times as Republicans like to make that allegation, they are asking the American people to jump across this broad innuendo gap because the prosecutors, the investigators who had every tool to go after the financial records and to actually try to see if there was anything there regarding Joe Biden himself as vice president after five years brought no charges against Joe Biden. And the only charges they brought in that Wilmington case was a gun charge that is rarely brought that was subject to a plea agreement. And then the tax charge, which is a matter that Hunter Biden has admitted. He did not pay his taxes while he was on crack. And once he got sober, he paid his taxes back. And so if those were the only two charges after five years, I'm not sure Republicans are gaining any ground trying to tie this to Joe Biden in a general election. In the Republican Party, this is already dogma. It is biblical. Joe Biden's a criminal. Hunter Biden's a criminal. It is what it is. Even this charge isn't enough, right? They're not going to turn around and love David Weiss. They want a bigger book thrown at him, right? Right. But does it influence an independent voter next November over the price of gas? Probably not, unless DOJ actually has more to this by then. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Today's feature is about the Antiquities Act, the first U.S. law to provide general legal protection for cultural, scientific, and historical resources. And to explain that law, we welcome Jenny O'Dell. Jenny O'Dell is a writer and artist based in Oakland, California. Her first book, how to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy, was published in 2019, and her second book, Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock, was published this year. Her visual work has been exhibited at the Contemporary Jewish Museum in the New York Public Library, as well as countless museums around the world. She has been an artist in residence at several cultural institutions, and from 2013 to 2021, she taught digital art at Stanford University. I give you Jenny O'Dell on the Antiquities Act. In 1906, 
President Theodore Roosevelt signed into law an Act for the Preservation of American Antiquities, also known as the Antiquities Act. It was the first law in U.S. history to place cultural, scientific, and historical resources and artifacts under federal jurisdiction for their protection. The Act recognizes, in general, that it is in the public interest to preserve significant sites on public land. Since its passage, the Act has put in place legal protections of many of America's most influential and iconic sites. The Act was passed as a response to the haphazard removal and desecration of Native American ruins and artifacts in the Western United States by private collectors. Since its passage, the Act has been used nearly 300 times by U.S. Presidents. The Act empowers the President to establish national monuments on existing federal lands by proclamation. The Act goes on to provide protections, including criminal penalties, against the removal of materials from archaeological sites. Theodore Roosevelt established Devil's Tower as the first national monument in 1906. The president's power to proclaim national monuments can be in tension with the power to create national parks, which is subject to the normal legislative process. In 1908, Roosevelt declared more than 800,000 acres of the Grand Canyon a national monument as, quote, an object of unusual scientific interest. The Supreme Court upheld that action unanimously holding that presidents may designate national monuments of any size. Congress, in 1919, designated the Grand Canyon a national park. Similarly, after FDR proclaimed the Jackson Hole National Monument in 1943, Congress, in 1950, passed a law subsuming the monument into Grand Teton National Park and requiring the creation or expansion of national monuments in Wyoming to obtain congressional approval. Most recently, President Trump in 2017 issued an executive order requiring a review of previous presidential designations of national monuments, which led to the shrinking of the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument and Bears Ears National Monument in Utah. The action was challenged on the ground that the Antiquities Act doesn't give the president the power to reduce or nullify previous national monuments. That challenge was mooted when President Biden reversed Trump's changes, so it remains unclear whether presidents can reduce or eliminate national monument sites. For Talking Feds, I'm Jenny O'Dell. Thank you so much, Jenny O'Dell. You can find Jenny's new book, Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock, at pretty much any major bookstore, including Barnes & Noble and Amazon. And now, a word from our sponsor the American Civil Liberties Union. Hello, I'm Sandra Park, a senior attorney with the ACLU Women's Rights Project. At the ACLU, we believe everyone deserves equal access to safe and stable housing. Fair housing is a civil rights issue because it's fundamental to creating a more just society. Where we live is not just an address. It's central to all of life's opportunities, what services, healthcare, jobs, schools, and transportation we can access and where we can build community with our families. The ACLU is working to reduce mass evictions and barriers to housing opportunities that disproportionately impact Black women renters and their families and restore important housing protections to expand equal access to housing opportunities for everyone. To learn more about our efforts to ensure everyone has equal access to safe and stable housing, visit aclu.org.
All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we dig up the dirt on the agave plant to find out the difference between tequila and mezcal. So first things first, tequila is a type of mezcal, much like bourbon is a type of whiskey. In general, tequilas are mezcals, but not all mezcals are tequilas. Allow me to explain. Tequila can only come from the blue agave plant in specific regions of Mexico, like the region of Jalisco, where the city of tequila is located. No coincidence there. Mezcal, however, can be made from many varieties of agave, specifically from the heart of the agave, known as the piña. The distillery process for tequila and mezcal is also different. Tequila is produced by steaming the blue agave and then distilling it in copper stills for a toasty, clean taste. On the other hand, mezcal, which appropriately means oven-cooked agave, is cooked in earthen pits with wood and charcoal before being distilled in clay pots. No wonder mezcal, which is typically consumed straight, has more of a smoky, earthy taste of course, the best way to get to know the differences between tequila and mezcal is to pick up a bottle of each from your Total Wine & More and pour hundreds of years of tradition right into your glass. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, I'd like to do a whole nother hour if you guys don't mind, but we'll make it seven minutes instead. There's so many sort of political questions looming. Let's start here, I guess. You, Julie, just made the point about the fear in the Department of Justice and what could happen if Trump is elected. The two candidates behind Trump, DeSantis and Ramaswamy, have this week come out with it expressing sympathy and support for the Proud Boys after their leadership was sentenced to substantial prison terms these past couple weeks. So is it clear that Trumpism as it were, flirtation with domestic terrorism and other things is just going to be a feature of the party going forward no matter what happens to Trump. Will these guys, if they happen to become president, will they pardon Proud Boys? And, and is this whole strain that you expressed about law enforcement as on the run and discredited just going to be a Republican Party platform going forward? It's one of my favorite combos is would Trumpism exist without Trump? And I think you can look globally to see that there are figures like Trump who have emerged as part of populist movements, far right nationalist movements around the globe that are anti-immigration, supposedly pro-worker in a way, but very nationalistic. And that can exist without Donald Trump. On the other hand, I do wonder if these candidates would be taking the time to make these points if they weren't looking at their far, you know, ahead front runner, Donald Trump. How would they then be stacking up? What would they be talking about instead? I'm having a flashback to 2018, having an off the record at the White House and a senior advisor said, look, we might not take the words that come out of his mouth. We might cringe too sometimes. But he has this special sauce about what got him elected, and we don't mess with it. And so even if there's some very skilled political operatives who would never think that they would be sympathetic to the Proud Boys or that their candidate would be making those comments, they are living in this reality now. And I guess they're willing to make those 
sacrifices, if you want to call it that. All right. I just want to do a lightning round on these things. So many things to talk about politically, and I hope you all come back and do it. But David, (laughs) you made a terrifying statement on MSNBC last week, at least I think so. Maybe more than one, but I'll say this one. I say this with conviction. I think Ron DeSantis is far more dangerous than Donald Trump. And you're from Florida, so you'd have a pretty good sense. What makes you say that? Yeah, I do. And look, maybe they're equally dangerous. (laughs) I got pushed on this a lot. Is he really more dangerous? Look, before Ramaswamy really emerged on debate night, I had always suggested about this field Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis are uniquely dangerous. Everybody else, you might be upset with their ideology, certainly more conservative than progressives would like. But I think in Trump and DeSantis, you have two people willing to shred the Constitution, strain the Constitution. I'm going to run this all the way to the Supreme Court and see if I can get the court to side with me. Everyone else, you're fairly traditional hard right conservatives who probably would act within the Constitution. I think areas where Ron DeSantis might be more dangerous than Donald Trump is, one, he's more effective at it. Two, his willingness to take our culture back 50 years, 100 years. He really is straining the Constitution in ways that impact equity and personal freedoms and liberties, particularly of historically marginalized and disadvantaged communities. Donald Trump, we know how dangerous he is. But he also is someone without really any ideological conviction. So he gives safe harbor to the Proud Boys and others almost in a transactional way. Notice he does not like to touch a lot of the LGBT issues. He often comes down on the wrong side of those issues, but he doesn't have core convictions about them. Lon DeSantis, however, has shown us in his ethos that he is anti-LGBT. He is willing to quiet the suffrage and voting rights of the black and brown community. He plays theater with migrants. He makes fun of migrants. He makes fun of youth. He makes fun of public health officials. And all of that compiles into what is a very leave it to beaver era of what we now would consider white nationalism in the hands of someone with power. Ron DeSantis, I think, is a very dangerous person in this race. We have two of them, I think, in Trump and DeSantis. Ramaswamy, if you consider him a contender. Which I don't, but that's a really good point. All right, we have only a few minutes. Let's end with the president. A poll has Democrats totally tearing their hair out from CNN. 58% negative job ratings for Biden, concerns about age. More than half of Democratic voters say they'd rather see someone else. Of course, Biden and Trump seem to be you know, remain tied. Nearly half of registered voters say that any Republican presidential nominee would be a better choice than Biden. So a lot of scary news for Democrats. On the other hand, if you look at second-term presidents and at this stage in their tenure, it's remarkable, but things were kind of tied for people who wound up winning handily, starting from Reagan. So Is this as grim as it sounds, or are Democrats pushing the panic button too hard too soon? I think the reality is what we've learned from the past five elections, probably, is the nation is exceedingly divided, and it's almost uh, the generic test that we are asked each November now. And so each of the likely nominees, Biden and Trump, have their strengths and have their weaknesses, but we remain a divided nation. And I think you could plug and play with who those nominees are, and you could move the race a couple points. And among an equally divided nation, a couple points could win or lose an election. But I don't think Democrats need to ring an alarm bell right now. I do think 
maybe part of the legacy of Trumpism, I certainly don't remember it like this before, is polling seemed skewed to me because anything you ask voters, what's the old Marx Brothers movie, whatever it is, I'm against it. You know, when it's actually served up, what do we think about Biden? They trash him. What do we, you know, what do we think about anything? They trash him. And the more subtle, important question is really not the traditional ones of polls, I think. And that's the kind of ray of hope for the Democrats. We have time, one minute, for our much-beloved, that is by listeners, not by guests, feature of five uh, words or fewer where we take a question from a listener and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. Within the poll was the important point that non-voters, people who say, no, I'm not going to vote, seem to favor Trump two to one over voters. So the question is, with an asterisk, how do you turn a non-voter into a voter? And the asterisk is wrong answers only. Two words, get pregnant. (laughs) Whether you want to have a baby or not, you're going to care a whole lot about the way the world's going and who's elected. Harry, I'd say mask mandates. And mask mandates would change this election in a heartbeat. Harry, I'm going to give you an answer that I wish were a wrong answer, but probably is the right one, and it's get indicted again. And I have a similar, and it's the first time I've been six words, so I'm just going to automatically take out one, and I think people will understand it. Get out jail-free cards. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Julia, Lisa, and David, and thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on our YouTube channel, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This past week, we posted a conversation with Peter Weiner, a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum on the Trumpification of American Evangelical Christianity. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether they're for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate produced by Catherine Devine, sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Our research producer is Zeke Reed. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers and production assistants by Meredith McCabe, Akshaj Turbalu, and Emma Maynard. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Talk to you later.